I got to say, from all of our conversations, including that description that you gave just there, I get the sense that the military is an exceptional organization when it comes to continuous training, continuous development. Greetings, friends. I'm James. And I'm Randy. You're listening to the Passionately Wrong Podcast, where we challenge your assumptions, offer some different perspectives, and hopefully help you make better decisions. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Passionately Wrong Podcast with James Bellersville and Randy Searles. I'm Randy. And uh, today we're going to talk about misconceptions in the military because I have 32 years in the military and uh, and I know from just my sons talking to me, if nothing else, that there's a lot of misconceptions that civilians have about how the military functions and day-to-day life and things like that. And, and James has already asked me a few questions on the side, so we thought this would be a good topic. So I'm actually going to turn this over to James to start it out with. Like, what do you want to know about the military that you think is weird or you're not even sure of? I appreciate that, Randy. And you're right. We have had a few sidebar conversations and went off on such tangents that we didn't think it was appropriate. Uh, but we're going to try and channel it a little bit here. I think the one that probably got us off to start with, and I'm going to start there myself today, is uh, weapons and the military. Because my sense as a lay person is that if you are a soldier and you're in the military, then you are surrounded by weapons all the time, whether you're on the base or off the base. And I would assume at home, you've got a gun strapped under your table, a gun strapped to your thigh. uh, (laughs) And I don't know why I should think that other than that's sort of your job. You need to know how to use weapons. So wouldn't that be a big part of your life all the time? Do you spend your spare time practicing shooting your weapons? Uh, You know, do you have pistols lying around the house at home? And it it sounds stupid for me to say it out loud like that, but honestly, I have to admit that is a little bit what I think. Do you have them in your car? Do you, you know, is there one under the baby stroller? Do you strap one to your dog? Where do you keep your weapons and how many do you have? How many did you take with you when you left the military, right? Did they give you? (laughs) So I assume you must have a bunch of guns. Yeah, I've never owned a gun myself in my life. Um, Maybe... I, I would I would say that the majority of my peers in the Green Berets probably owned a gun, at least one. I know some that are exactly as you described, but they're their personal weapons. Let's get that straight, right? They're not the ones that we shoot on the military ranges. They're not the ones that the military issues us to, to use. They're their own personal weapons. So just like uh, any average Texan probably has a bunch of weapons in his house. So, you know, the, a lot of these guys joined the military because they love weapons and they owned some before they joined. And as they got up in ranks and made more money, they bought more. And some of them have a, a, a gun safe full of pistols and rifles and, you know, hopefully not any grenades or anything. But um, but uh, I, I know people that are just like you described. They have uh, one under their dining room table and they have one under their couch and they have one under their pillow and they have two in their car. Um, I never felt this need for that. I never felt unsafe where I was living. Um, so I, I never felt like I needed that. Um, the military, I never shot a gun before I joined the military. Um, I didn't 
get the um, gun shooting merit badge when I was in Boy Scouts. I got an archery one, but I didn't get a gun shooting one. So I never shot a gun before, except maybe at a festival, if that's like a BB gun or something like that, like a fair. Um, So the Army taught me how to shoot, which in some cases, the Army prefers it that way because you don't have any bad habits. So they teach you how to shoot. And I came out of the, I came out shooting expert, um, which I'd say probably 20% of basic trainees do that because they give you good classes. And some of the people who had been shooting their whole life don't necessarily make expert because they have bad habits. How much of your time do you spend practicing learning how to shoot? Is it something that happens at the beginning and then you're done? Or do you have to continue with it all the time? So everybody goes through basic training. And in basic training, they have basic rifle marksmanship. And they teach you how to shoot. And you go to the range a number of times. I don't know how many. I I wasn't ever a drill sergeant. So I don't remember how many times we went. It was a long time ago. But we went a number of times to practice shooting, to um, to practice our marksmanship, and then to qualify. And um, and then you you have to shoot forty targets. And if you get a thirty eight, thirty nine, or forty, you get expert. And if you shoot another, there's another margin for a sharpshooter. And then there's another margin for marksman. And then if you shoot below a certain amount, I think it's twenty three, then you don't qualify. And then you get a little badge to wear on your your dress uniform. Um, and then you can get badges for machine guns. You can get badges, badges for grenade launchers. You can get badges for tanks, I think, you know, and, you know, if you become a tanker, things like that, you know, and, and uh, anti-aircraft guns, howitzers and stuff like that. There's different badges you can get for, for, to get, to be an expert in your profession. You know, they, they give you kind of that, that motivation. It's kind of like all the games you play on your phone and you get the little, the little Ouija's and stuff, the widgets and stuff like that. When you do really good, uh, they learned from the military probably. Um, so I learned, uh, how to shoot a machine gun, how to shoot a grenade launcher, how to shoot, uh, a, a rifle in basic training. Um, and then I went to the Rangers and we shot machine guns, grenade launchers and rifles a lot. And we did not shoot pistols at all because pistols were issued to, Medics and chaplain assistants and most other people didn't have pistols. And so we didn't have access. They didn't have the ammo to shoot it. We didn't have enough pistols for everybody. And this is back before 9-11. After 9-11, for sure, and maybe as early as the mid mid late 90s, before 9-11, <clears throat> they started um, issuing pistols to special operations as their secondary weapon. So if you're shooting your rifle, just like you, if a lot of people are playing Call of Duty and all these, um, you know, first person games on their computers and stuff. When your character shoots its rifle and it runs out of ammo, uh, then you 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 put you pull your pistol out in like a couple seconds and you'll still be able to engage. And then once you have cleared all your targets, you'll holster your pistol and then you'll load up your rifle and you'll be ready to go again. And that's that's the way the world works. Um, but that wasn't. That wasn't the way all Rangers and especially all infantry, they just didn't have have pistols for everybody. So not everyone learned how to transition from a rifle to a pistol. Not everyone learned how to shoot a pistol. And that became very obvious when I went to the Green Berets and they gave me a secondary uh, weapon as a pistol. And I never shot one before. And so uh, the team was trying to teach me how to shoot, but they didn't really know at that time how to teach me how to shoot. Cause it wasn't, it just wasn't a priority. And so I was a really bad pistol shooter for a while. 
And then I something clicked. I went to some special like two week training, uh, and uh, and uh, something clicked, and I became a very good pistol shooter like overnight. And just I, I got all the things that you needed to do the breath, the 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 hold, the, how to hold it, you know, how to, and it it just seemed to all work out all of a sudden, and I got better. <clears throat> and then we started actually after 9-11, we started prioritizing the transition and the pistol shooting and things like that. So, but I never brought any of my, obviously my weapons from the wet, from the military home and I didn't own any weapons and I didn't shoot in my free time because honestly, I didn't enjoy shooting that much. Funny enough. Uh, that was not why I joined the army to shoot. I joined the army. I mean, I, I, I came in the SF as a medic, um, and so I did, you know, you know, first aid and amputations and stuff like that. Shooting was interesting. I ended up being pretty good at it. It wasn't the best by any means, but, and I ended up going to sniper school at one time. So hmm. I was, I was sniper qualified, but, um, but it wasn't my favorite thing to do. I didn't find, I didn't want to sit out in a range with a sniper rifle and shoot all day. And some people love to do that. That That's their dream job. And they and they're there and and th- and they did it, but I that, that was never interested, never interested me, never did. So, um, so I think what the, you're saying is it's somewhat individual, you will be surrounded by um rifles mostly, uh, but now also depending on your occupation or role within the military, also pistols. But you can certainly have an, a, your life outside, um, entirely free uh, of weapons as, as you do. And I'm sure others do as well. Yeah. And, but, and also, you know, the military, some people think that everyone in the military is a fighter, but they all, the, the rule of thumb is you have nine people supporting one trigger shooter, trigger puller. Right. So, so one combat guy has nine people behind him between HR, you know, finance, medicine, you know, medical, dental, legal, uh, supply, logistics, all those people, there's all there, you know, 90% of the military is supporting that 10% that are in the front lines. I suppose that makes sense. And I understand it. You know, there's a lot of logistics that goes into making everything work. Let's, since you do have experience in the special forces as a ranger and as a green beret, let's get to another misconception perhaps, uh, or you tell me which is okay you are that one out of 10 the, the 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 trigger and off doing dangerous things you know there's an impression in popular media in movies and in books that if you are i won't i won't specify cuz i couldn't say which if you're somehow in one of the special forces you're likely to be a psychopath you like going around killing people you're dangerous and inherently inherently unstable and unsafe, right? You're not fit for human consumption anymore or societal consumption because you've just been trained to be lethal. And so how do you take a person who's been put through the rigors that are required to turn someone into a lethal killing machine and expect them to be, you know, acceptable in polite society? You're just somehow, I'm sorry if this sounds rude or dangerous or damaging, Randy. I don't mean it that way, but that is a little bit what you get. You read a Jack Reacher book and the special forces guys are off, you know, serial killer in their private time and he's got to hunt them down. And it seems like there's not an easy life outside the military for someone who spent a decade or more becoming a highly trained, um, dangerous person. How would you assess that myth? Well, I mean, I think the military is a subset of society, of of American society, I think if you look at 
all of the, unfortunately, the many mass shootings in the United States, I don't think you're not going to show, you're not going to show 50% or 40 or 30. I think you'll probably maybe show 80 or maybe more uh, that are not military. Right. Um, especially the ones that are happening in the schools that don't, they don't seem to be attributed to military at all. Uh, which is a good the point. Actually, one. you don't usually hear about mass shootings involving military. There's not often a connection there. Okay, so that's a good point um, to say. Well, okay, there's not a lot of correlation, at least, with what is happening in broader society. I mean, if you're, and then if you want to talk just violence, I mean, once again, we're a subset of society. We have people who are, you know, have domestic problems, and but there's a, plenty of civilians out there that are do that are involved in domestic violence too. I don't think you'll see a higher percentage with the, the, within the military culture than than civilian culture. I think it's probably about average. I had an argument about, because there's a huge amount of um, press whenever there's rape or something or, or, or sexual assault in, in the military. But I think, I think uh, I've seen statistics on that too. And it, I don't think it's any higher than college. Uh, you know, I, I had an argument with with. Um, I've actually some... seen statistics going the other way, saying that you're safer in the military than you would be <laughs> on a college campus. Uh, seriously, right? I know. I, I was going through my master's program. A lot of them were teachers, and um, and I and I had an argument. They never served in the military, and then we had an argument about rape culture in the military. And I was like, "What are you saying?" He's like, he's like, oh, look, you know, all these things are just, just so many rapes in the military is like so many compared to what? I mean, if you're if you're looking to be to send your children to a safe place, maybe you don't send them to college because that's probably the biggest rape culture there is. And they're like, well, but I was like, but what? I mean, if you're saying that they're more likely to die in combat than on, on the street driving a car, they should probably go to combat because there's a lot more you know, fatal accidents in the United States on the road than people getting killed in Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, you look at the statistics, it's not even close. So I don't even know what what we're arguing about, you know? I mean, the reason misconceptions and myths arise is that people draw wrong conclusions from available data, the availability heuristic. You read what's in the headlines and you read about an airplane crash and you assume airplane crashes are more prevalent than they are because they're always reported. Same thing with actual you know, mass shootings. You assume they're more prevalent than they are because they're always headline news. And I expect that is indeed how some of the misconceptions about any profession arise, but certainly also the military. Since you said, and I think you're correct, that the military is just a subset of society and is so going to reflect all sorts of things. Let's get to another one about who joins the military. I think I would say the misconception is it consists of either patriots, people who, you know, put America above everything else and so serve for altruistic reasons. And then um, misfits is probably the wrong word, but people who don't find an easy way in the other, you know, in our previous podcast, we talked about work in the system, right? So you go to school, you get a job, you do a profession people who don't have an easy way with that because they don't like school, they don't want to go to school, they you know, are chafing against the existing system, often find their way to the military. Am I wrong to say that those are the two buckets? Or should you say it's all the rest of society as well? Who do you think decides to go because it's a volunteer service? Well, well, first of all, um, there's a famous um, Green Beret who's also an MMA fighter called Tim Kennedy. And he often, he often says this. So I'm going to quote him. 
It's harder to get in the military than it is to, to college. Right? Is that so? Yeah, Why? of course. Well, um, first of all, we don't take obese people. Aha, uh-huh. the physical fitness uh, standards. Se- second of all, we don't. If you have a history of doing drugs, we don't take you. If you have a history of mental illness, we don't take you. I mean, that just just those three things right there. I mean, you can see how it's seventy percent of uh, <laughs> the population. Right. So so and then also, you know, they have wish washed back and forth. But the latest thing I think is you have to have a high school degree. Right. But you don't have to finish high school to take a test to get into college, to get into community college. You can start community college without a high school degree. You just have to take an entry exam. All right. That doesn't I mean, I accept and I like that quote, harder to get into the military than it is to get into college, but it still doesn't address the point of whether you're attracting psychopaths or patriots or... You're getting a bigger and larger and larger subset of educated people in the military. You have... So first of all, officers are come from a college somewhere. They got to go to college first. So you're getting college students from the colleges around the world. Every college has you know, pretty much someone. I've met people from Harvard. I've met people from, you know, Princeton. I've met people from UT. So and all What's the officers their motivation, have- Would you say, what, what do you think they see as the value some, some, of, some of them is patriotism. Some of them is college money. Some of them is a, a steady paycheck. Some of them, is, I mean, why? So doctors, you get your med school, you get college and med school paid for, and you in 20 years, you get a, uh, you know, a probably a eight or nine thousand dollar check every month automatically. And that's not, and and also they give doctors huge bonuses. I mean, you may not get getting your the annual salary of, you know, the neurosurgeon, you know, and the civilian world, but all your insurance is covered. Uh, you, you, you're not going to get sued. You're um, you're getting huge bonuses at the end of the year that aren't taking you up to that level, but, you know, maybe halfway. And then you get this you get this, you know, retirement check every year for the rest of your life. And, and not including all the stuff you put in your 401k and everything else. So I think money you're saying, good, I think, is it's a good job and provides you with a good value proposition. It's not a bad job. So a a private at the lowest level starts at two thousand dollars a month. That's. That's better than working at McDonald's and you, and you get, and that, and they cover your, if you're private, if you're single private, they cover your housing, your electricity, your water, you have to pay for your cell phone. And if you want a car, but I everything else is before about how, if you are clever in how you manage your money, no matter you know what level you start at, including as a private, you can start saving a really good amount of money, uh, taking advantage of all the other benefits that the military offers. So I mean, you can you after, and within four you start with two two thousand a month, and by the end of uh, four years, you'll probably be making around four thousand a month, depending on the promotions. Your wage goes up every two years, no matter what, if you get promoted or not. But you should be able to get at least three promotions in four years. And if you go to special schools, like if you go to a Green Beret school, you'll get an extra thousand dollars a month for being a Green Beret. So you're saying that it's selective. In the first place, because there's several criteria that will just knock you right out. Um, so it's a small subset of people who are actually even able to apply. It is. You also certainly... have to take. You also have to take an intelligence test. I mean, they right. have a they have a test to get in, and 
if you scored the lowest on the test or a cook, you know, or whatever, you're cooking, you're peeling potatoes. We don't peel, peel potatoes anymore. We have potato peelers. There are jobs that require, you know, the least score on the test to get in, but no one really wants those. I mean, even infantry is not even the lowest on the thing. There's lower jobs. I see. All right. So I think that's a good answer to the question or the, you know, the misconceptions about who joins the military and why. You mentioned a moment ago, officers will have come with a college degree. Let me ask you uh, or give you a misconception. Uh, I, there, there's a shitload of enlisted guys that come. I've seen people yes. with master's degrees. I have a, there was a guy that came in with two master's degrees and he wanted wow. to be enlisted. He wanted to be an enlisted Green Beret, even though he was going to earn less money because that's what he wanted to do. And so there's people, and so Green Berets maybe are a different subset because you get a lot of really talented people that that's what they want to do. Right. But e- even in the normal army, I met a girl. She had a master's degree from Harvard and she was barely a, she was a, just a rank above a private. She came in as a private. I mean, there's a, some really educated. Now, a lot of these people are bitter. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't understand it necessarily. What the motivation some, is, some people want to do it. Some people um, get, feel like they got tricked by the recruiter, which just sounds weird, but I guess it could be done. But it just, it just I just don't believe it. I don't, I don't believe that happens very often. I think they misunderstood it or they did it for another reason. They blamed it on that so they didn't look stupid. But there are a lot of people. I had a guy in basic training who had graduated college. He was an ROTC and he came in as an enlisted guy thinking that's what he wanted to do. And after he got through basic training, he's like, I don't want to do this. And he went to OCS. So as soon as you, if you come in and you don't like your enlisted job and you have a degree, you can apply for OCS and become an officer within a year. I mean, if you're, if they, if they check, if you check all the blocks, you have to get recommendations from your commander and stuff like that. But, but there's, there's a really, and also I would also say that the Army today, if you don't at some point within the first 10 or 12 years start towards a, getting a college degree, you won't get promoted to the highest levels as an enlisted guy. It didn't used to be that way when I came in. There was a lot of people who reached the highest level of enlistment, which is a, a sergeant major, and they didn't have a degree. There's there's people that reach that level. But as I was getting out, it was becoming harder and harder. Not only that, but the Army is kind of integrating that into their leadership courses. So at every time you get promoted, you have to go to a leadership course that teaches you to lead at the next level. Uh-huh. And, that, and now they're incorporating college level leadership courses that they're they're working together with universities and saying, all right, we're going to give them this leadership, this eight week, 10 week, 12 week leadership course. They're going to have to do uh, a year of online training before they even go to the, the one-on-one course and we want to integrate with you, the university here, the army will pay for it. And we want to integrate you having instructors teach leadership courses and finance courses or whatever to our guys. And then we want you to give them an associate's degree when they got eight years in. And we want you to give them a bachelor's degree at 15 years. And we want you to give them a master's degree at 22 years because they're going to go, they're going to get serious leadership uh, courses and be, and, and, and uh, maybe HR courses, depending on what their specialty is and stuff like that. And that's what we would like you to do. And they work with these universities, the military pays for it, and they get these degrees in the military through going to these leadership courses. 
I got to say, from all of our conversations, including that description that you gave just there, I get the sense that the military is an exceptional organization when it comes to continuous training, continuous development. It's not like you're ever you're in a role and then you're that's it. You're stagnant. I mean, maybe that happens, but there seems to be such a premium placed on training and, you know, trying to keep people advancing in their careers. And that's exceptional because a lot of organizations don't maintain that. What they teach, they, they assume everyone has the ability to learn, get a degree and rise to the highest level. So they don't pigeonhole and, you and say, you came in as a cook, you're going to be a cook forever or. Nope. You know, they, yeah. they don't, they, they don't, they don't. And they don't, they That's don't. such a positive. I mean, message, it doesn't right? matter. doesn't matter what race or what gender. It doesn't matter where you came from, where you were born, what, who, how, if you were poor or rich or medium, it doesn't matter any of that stuff. You're a soldier and it's we the assume egalitarian organization. If we you assume perform, you can move up. Yeah. We'd love to hear what you think. So please comment on the show with your thoughts. We read all of your comments. Thanks for joining us. And thanks for subscribing. See you next time. You've just listened to the Passionately Wrong podcast with James Bellergeau and Randy Searles. If you like this episode, follow us on your podcast platform or subscribe on YouTube. Join us each week to help you make better decisions by challenging your assumptions. And check out all our episodes at passionatelywrong.com.